0: we can't aim or gain or earn favor with you, but our prayer would be that as we live out obediently, that we would truly our lives would truly be a gift back to you. So Father, we pray tonight as we learn as we grow, that we would not only be hearers, we would be doers of your word, that we would hear, that we would obey, that we would apply to our heart, and that when we leave this place, we would um, uh, walk with you, and Lord, the overflowing of Your Holy Spirit would just move and work in and on and also through us. So, Father, we thank You for our time together tonight here. Also, we pray for all the uh, rehearsals and the the, uh, the uh, events and activities that are going on from students to preschool to children in our rehearsals with choir. Lord, bless them, be with them, uh, be with each and every one of them. May Your Holy Spirit's presence and power be. Uh, sensed and felt in a very evident and powerful way. Lord, we love you. We thank you for our time together, that we can come together between Sundays, and uh, we ask that you use this again in our lives so that we might serve you even more effectively. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: Got us fixed up back there. All right. So tonight, you have a copy of a a little sheet at the top It says, Preface, and at the back, it says chart number one. I want you to hold that. You can read it if you want to, but I want you to hold on to that. We'll come back to this in just a few moments, okay? So I want you to hold on to that. So I just, what I want you to do is is uh, to, to begin to focus tonight, just as you listen, as we get to this in just a moment, on what we're going to talk about. Now before we get into our subject tonight of miracles, I want to tell you how uh, much fun it's been every week to kind of go over these Questions uh, that non believers ask. And uh, this is our last, uh, not that this is the last question that non believers ask, but it's the last question that we're going to deal with on Wednesday night. And as, as Jody said, next week, uh, Warren Samuels will be teaching. And uh, and then maybe as we get back into the spring, January, we'll revisit some of these because there are a whole lot of questions. And I've had such a good time. I, I've, I've spent uh, pretty much since we started this series all day, every Wednesday, as much as a time as I I could have, uh, from early in the morning until uh, the time before, just reviewing these questions and and preparing for our Wednesday nights. Some of those I've done better than others. I can tell by the looks on your faces which days I've done better in trying to bring the material to you, Um, but I hope that it has provided a little bit of help to you Uh, The goal of these weren't to give you every answer that every non-believer will ever ask you about every question about the faith. The goal of these times on Wednesday night was to provide for you some ammunition that would help you when somebody asks you a question about the hope of Christ and the reason for your belief in Him that you would be able to logically and you would be able to theologically and biblically to be able to respond. And uh, so I hope that you've gained some insight along the way. Um, there are people who have studied these things for decades and decades and still don't have every answer. So we're trying to, to refine our, our understanding. Now, tonight we're going to talk about biblical miracles. And is there a case to be made that miracles are actually possible? Before we dive into the presentation, when we started back oh, a bunch of weeks ago, I told you about a philosophical way of reasoning called a syllogism. Uh, Kevin, you got out of bed and said, I hope he revisits that. So I know that that was what you wanted. So I'm joking. He didn't think of that at all. But, uh, But a syllogism is a logical argument. It's a deductive argument where you will have a premise and a premise and maybe another premise or another premise. And if those premises are true, they will lead to a logical conclusion. And so we think about arguments syllogistically. I know that's a big word, but we think about arguments that way. And uh, I knew that you'd be looking at me like a calf looking at a new gate, you know, tonight, going, what are you talking about? So I want to give you just a a syllogism, and I want to give you a false syllogism and give you an illustration how this works. So here's a false syllogism. And remember, the way that you can prove the validity of a syllogism is by negating one of the premises, uh, one of the premises. So uh, if you find that uh, one of the premises is false, well, then the, it's most likely that the conclusion will be false. So here's a syllogism. All of us will be able to understand this. You don't even have to write it down. It's pretty simple. Uh, if the streets are wet, it rained. Okay? That's, that's number one. Number two, the streets are wet. What would be, in your mind, what would be the conclusion? All right, it's not that hard. Let's try that again. <laughs> if the streets are wet, it rained. The streets are wet. Therefore, it rained. Now, is that, what is that? Correct. Correct. There's, al- there's always a smart person in the room, and I'm glad you're here tonight, George. No, for sure. So, what premise could you say is not accurate? And you would say, well, if the streets are wet, it rained. If the streets are wet, it may have rained. But the streets could be wet because a water main busted, or the streets could be wet because you went out there with a hose and hosed down the the road. The streets are wet because a, a water truck was driving by and it was leaking, you know, water. And so you can logically say that that first premise is not accurate. Therefore, to conclude that it rained is not a logical deduction. Okay, you see that? So there are people who would argue, when we started, when we talked about the existence of evil. We started talking, that was the first thing we talked about, the existence of evil. Uh, And before I I, I give you the the syllogism, just as a reminder, all of these arguments that we're talking about here as Christians relate to the existence of God uh, for our sake. Because if God doesn't exist, then all of these discussions we've had on these Wednesday nights, uh, they're, they're pointless. Because if God doesn't exist, then we have no God who has revealed himself in his word through his son. And if there is no God and he hasn't revealed himself in his word and ultimately through, uh, through his word, but ultimately in the person of his son, then we have no reliable way to make sense of anything in reality. Because we believe God exists, and because he exists, that God can declare things to be so. And if he declares things to be so, then what he declares to be so will be accurate. And if what he declares to be so is accurate, then what he declares to be so will give us guidance and direction in life. So all of our arguments are presuppose the existence of God. We talked about presuppositions, and a presupposition is a fundamental conviction. It's even stronger than the word conviction but it is the, the lens through which you view the world, the lens through which you interpret life. It is a presupposition. You, will, uh, you, you may uh, uh, you know, uh, fight over a strong feeling. You may uh, go uh, into battle uh, for a deeply held belief, uh, but you will ultimately only die for what you consider to be a conviction. And uh, a conviction as a presupposition, is a fundamental, uh, fundamental belief through which you view everything about the world. So how you view the world all comes back to your presuppositions. This is very important as we talk about miracles tonight. So remember the argument uh, that was used by those that would deny the existence of God because of the existence of evil? Here's the argument. They said, if God is all-powerful or omnipotent, and God is all-loving or omnibenevolent, then he would do away with evil. Second premise, evil exists. Conclusion, therefore God doesn't exist. Remember that argument? If God's powerful, he could take care of evil. If God's loving, he wouldn't allow it to occur in the first place. But we all know that evil exists, therefore God doesn't exist. Well, if you can demonstrate that in that argument, one of those uh, premises is wrong, then you can Deny the conclusion, or you can prove the conclusion is wrong that that God doesn't exist. Are y'all following me? So the the premise that God is all-powerful and God is all-loving is true. But what the premise fails to acknowledge is, is that an all-loving and an all-powerful God would have no reason or no purpose in evil. You see, just because God's all-powerful and just because He's all-loving doesn't mean that he has no ultimate purpose in evil. And so as we looked at the subject of evil, we understood, though, it is beyond our limited understanding to comprehend why natural evil or, or, or uh, moral evil would occur in our world. We believe that God ultimately, when it's all said and done, and when God is able to bring it all into light, has some greater purpose for it. It doesn't make it easy. Doesn't mean we have to like it. Doesn't mean that we can't cry out to God because of it. But we do believe that He has a purpose, and so that's an uh, 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 an example of where a syllogism, you know, uh, can be argued. Now, l- let me give you another one as it re- relates to, to to miracles, and uh, here is the argument against miracles by uh, skeptics, or as we'll see in just a moment, by a worldview that permeates our culture and is being taught, by the way, in our universities uh, and in our public schools. And uh, this is the particular worldview that dominates the day uh, outside of the church. You know, at, at people in church, sometimes we talk to each other so much that we, we think we're the only opinions in the world. And I tell people all the time, you know, sometimes, you know, if you want to know what else is going on in the world and, and you want to know what your neighbors think... Uh, You know, turn off the the 24-hour news channel that you always watch and watch the other one. You know, seriously. Uh, You know, a lot of us, we we pump our minds with the same type of uh, truth all the time, and we fail to uh, realize not that we have to accept any other view, but we have to learn to accept that the predominant view in culture is a view that is so much different than the view that you and I have. And I'll just ask you this question, when you leave here and you go to work or you go to school or you go to your neighborhood, does everybody agree with you and your philosophical, theological, biblical viewpoint? No, so we have to understand what people think and how they think if we're going to have any type of uh, influence and interaction with them. So let me give you the predominant worldview as it relates to miracles. And as you'll notice, I'm not turning the slide because this was a last minute uh, addition to the notes Uh, anyway. So let me give you the predominant worldview syllogism. You remember, premise, 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 conclusion. (coughs) Miracles are violations of natural laws. Okay, that's number one. Miracles are violations of natural laws. Number two, natural laws are immutable. means they can't change. So the argument is a natural law is if I step off of this uh, stage, gravity is going to take me to the ground. Natural laws are laws that we observe in nature that we know you can't violate. There are laws that are observable. There are laws that uh, are repeatable. Uh, there are laws that, that, that create uh, the, the system, the structure of how nature works and how the universe works. And so the argument would be, miracles violate those laws, and yet those laws are immutable number three, it is impossible for immutable laws to be violated. I mean, if the law is immutable and you violate it, it's not immutable, right? So the argument would be, number four, therefore, miracles are impossible. Okay, you see the argument? How would you respond to that if somebody came up to you and said, hey, wait, time out? Your miracles in the Bible, listen, they violate natural laws. I mean, red seas don't part. Uh, The the rivers don't turn to blood. Uh, and you'll just go on and on. Uh, ba- babies aren't born uh, by uh, virgin births. Uh, p- dead people don't walk out of tombs. I mean, we can, just, we can just keep going on and on and on. you look at the back of your sheet, there are about 34, 35 that Jesus did, you know. And so, how would you argue that? Well, you would have to argue that one of the premises is wrong. Or there, there's, and that's correct, did somebody say second? The second one, right. Natural laws are immutable. Now, now here's the, here's the reason that we can poke some holes in that. While we observe natural laws, and natural laws regularly occur in a regular way according to a regular pattern, that's our limited understanding what we can observe. The assumption is, is that we have a complete and total understanding of every natural law and how those laws work, and it, 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 it presumes that we understand that laws, the way we observe them, are going to happen that way all the time. Now, my observation is, if I step off of this stage, gravity's taking me to the ground, but it does not necessarily mean that it's going to happen that way every time in every way. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a step of faith to believe that, even though uh, empirically, I mean, with great certainty, I can probably tell you that it's going to happen, because that's what I observe. But yet, we know only a part of what happens according to natural law. And again, I think you're k- kind of getting the, the gist of where we're headed here. When you take God and enter God into the equation, then that whole syllogism begins to change. And so we're going to begin to look at that. And I want to give you a couple of uh, perspectives to, to look at uh, as we kind of walk through this. And I want to give you a perspective from a, a Christian perspective. I want to give you a perspective from a skeptical perspective. And when I get into that, I want to talk with you about how our, how our cultural shift in thinking Uh, all changed uh, in uh, the 18th century, in a time period of human history called the Enlightenment, 17th and 18th century. But let's dive in. I want to give you a a quote. Boy, that print is small uh, when I look at it on the back wall there. But I want to give you a print by a, a, a theologian named John McQuarrie. And in his principles of Christian theology, he makes several assertions about miracles. And I think these are very helpful. Number one, he says a miracle has to be something which is attributable to God in addition to it being an extraordinary event. And his argument is that uh, a miracle, first and foremost, is an unprecedented, unique event that happens. Um, and so he would argue that that unprecedented, unique event uh, that's extraordinary is attributable to God. Number two, in a minimal sense, a miracle is an event that excites wonder, but it is evident in a religious context the word miracle carries more than just this minimal sense. It is believed that God is in the event in some special way that he intends, that he is the, uh, that he intends, that he is the author of it and intends to achieve something special uh, by the end of it. So that's, a, that's, a, that's probably a definition that most of us would agree with. You know, we've grown up believing that that uh, miracles are uh, events that happen outside of the realm of everyday experience. Uh, many times they go against the quote unquote natural order. Uh, they are extraordinary, they're not common. Uh, if they were common, they wouldn't be extraordinary. And so we would acknowledge that there is a God, our God, who is behind those miracles, who is able to do those things. Uh, in Macquarie is simply just standing on the shoulders of those who have gone before him. That's what we all do. Uh, And so there was a theologian in the 13th century, a guy by the name of Thomas Aquinas. And all of you know Thomas Aquinas, right? Because we've talked about him and his argument for the existence of God. Remember the prime mover, the unmoved mover, the uncaused cause? Remember that? And we talked about contingent beings and necessary beings. And you all are theologians and understand all that. So we won't go back into that. And all God's people said, amen. So, uh... But Thomas Aquinas was a 13th century theologian, and he attempted to define uh, the different events which could be interpreted as miraculous. And he recognized that to call an event miraculous is to put an interpretation onto what happened and express an opinion about it. So you get the point. When you say something's miraculous, it's more than you're just describing something that happened. You are personally injecting into that uh, an opinion, and you're taking that, that that event to a whole nother level now a lot of times we use the word miraculous like I got in this accident look at my car it was a miracle you know that I that I didn't survive well I mean that I didn't survive <laughs> 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 that I didn't die and uh, we look at that accident and we say that and we say well that was miraculous well, that's not what we're talking about here when we talk about miracles. Not that it's not a miraculous experience and not that God didn't have a purpose in what he did in that experience and, and all of that. But, but when, we, when we look at an event that we call miraculous, we're, we're, we're offering an opinion about it, right? Because somebody very well could say to you, that wasn't miraculous. That was, you were just lucky, you know? That guy turned his wheel and, and it was a stroke of luck that, that he looked up from his text message When he was texting, at the time that he did, if he didn't invent a head-on collision, but he looked up enough to turn the wheel, somebody would say, my interpretation of that is, uh, that was just fortunate. Your interpretation would be otherwise. So you get the point that, that, that Aquinas is saying, when you talk about a miracle, you are talking about something that you have an opinion about. Number three, he argued for an event to be properly worthy of the name miracle. It has to be an event which is, as he called it, intrinsically wonderful. Not just wonderful to the person, uh, to this person, but, or, or to, uh, to this person, but not to that person. And by the way, just as parenthetically, it would rule out the ordinary birth of a healthy baby. Again, I mean, it's great. That's a miracle. My, my, it, uh, birth is a miracle, right? But again, it would have to be something that is universally recognized as something, right? Uh, that, is, uh, that is a miracle. And it must have a cause which is absolutely hidden. So in his sense, there's, uh, there's no logical explanation to it or, or uh, a rationale uh, for this occurring. And so it occurs outside of, uh, of, uh, of what is ordinary. Uh, it is important to be clear about what the laws of nature are. And remember, we talked about this, just to, just to review, they're not nec- necessarily fixed laws. They, the, the laws of nature talk about things that usually happen, but don't necessarily always have to happen. You got that? Now you see the reason it's hard for us to come to grips with that. Really, it is. When I even say it, I'm like, "Wait, time out." Gravity is always going to take me to the ground. And the reason I have I, I struggle with that is because I was I was educated in that worldview. You live in that worldview. The worldview you and I live in says that the universe operates according to fixed rules that are always going to happen in the same way at the same time. We've observed it over and over and over again. And yes, we believe as Christians that God created those rules. God created those laws. He's a God of logic, a God of order, and he had to create those laws so that our our world would function properly. But it, it does not mean that everything is always Everything always has to happen according to those laws. So perhaps God can suspend natural laws on occasions. For example, sometimes a loving uh, parent relaxes certain rules in response to a child's pleading. Have You ever done that as a parent? Nobody in here has ever done that <laughs> as a parent. Or a student who is pleading with his professor to have mercy uh, on him or on her because they didn't complete the assignment. Well, the syllabus says you don't turn your assignment and you get a zero. But wait, okay, I'll give you an exception here. Now, you see, the law is this is what ordinarily is going to happen, but it doesn't mean that it's always going to happen that way. So miracles have to be occasional. If they were more regular, life would be confusing. So we talked a little bit also about C.S. Lewis, and C.S. Lewis wrote a book on miracles and uh, defended the Christian belief, obviously, as you would imagine. Uh, He said, "We're, we're faced with a choice about how we view the world. We are either, we visited this, we're either naturalists, which is reality is totally physical, or we're supernaturalists, non-physical things may exist. Remember that the theory of naturalism, naturalism simply states that the world and the created order and all that we see, you know, and observe is all that exists. Well, naturalism is self-defeating. If you're just a physical being subjected to laws of cause and effect uh, as all physical objects, are, then your decision to believe in naturalism is physically caused, and you have no choice about what you believe. I mean, if the world is just a, a simply cause and effect, and we're all here and just on uh, on board for the ride, uh, it's it's self-defeating. I mean, what what's the point? Uh, but if you believe in supernatural, then you would believe a, a Lastly, by the way, your decision is caused by physical factors, not supernatural factors. But if you believe in the supernatural, then you will believe that that there uh, are things that happen in this world that uh, defy what is physical. That there is a, a reason and there uh, is a purpose and, uh, and, and we are not an accident and uh, we are not... Uh, deterministic beings, which are determined from the very beginning to go a certain way, but we're part of what God is doing in His world, and we have the interaction with Him. You see how the worldview totally changes based on where you are? Are you all bored yet? Okay. All right. So here's a quote by C.S. Lewis. He says, Miracles are a retelling in small letters of the very same story, which is written across the whole world in letters too large for some of us to see. I love that quote. So, you know, I, I love how Lewis, in, in, in his own inimitable way, uh, can, uh, uh, can, can, can take that and, uh, in his inimical way, can take that and he can summarize it in such a, such a clear way. Um, so, let me give you just a, 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 an overview then of, of, of uh, what we believe or what I believe, what most Christians believe, what evangelicals believe about miracles. If God exists, then miracles are possible, for there cannot be an act of God unless there is a God who can act. Does that make sense? Conversely, if there is a God who can act, then there can be acts of God. So the only way to show miracles are impossible is to disprove the existence of God, something that lies beyond the bounds of scientific inquiry. And again, that's why we started when we did by arguing for the existence of God. And again... You don't have to necessarily uh, begin in the Bible. You ultimately have to get to the Bible, but you don't have to begin there. And that's why we started talking about some of the arguments. Remember what those were? The moral argument, the fact that we are moral human beings is is a picture of our creation in the image of God. Uh, That we know the difference between right and wrong. We've used the illustration, you never see a a lion wringing its hands after it killed an impala. What have I done? Uh, But yet, as a human being, morally created in God's image, uh, we understand that to take a life is not normal. And how do we understand that? We understand that based uh, on what Immanuel Kant said philosopher, he said, there's this categorical imperative, this mor- morality uh, that governs how we live so we know the difference between right and wrong. Again, he didn't go to the Bible. He simply was just making an argument. And then again, others who have argued that if things are in motion, you can't have an infinite regress of causes. You can't just keep going and going and going. You have to have something that started it off. You can't have that just going, for going on forever. There had to be something that started it, and his argument is that is perfect uh, uh, indication that there is a prime mover, or a non-move mover or a non-cause-cause. Cause. Anyway, so when we talk about all of that, we begin to bring God into the picture, and therefore it gives us perspective. So that's great, right? You all believe that. I heard a couple of amens, right? All right, let's see if we get a few more on some of these that I'm about to talk about. So let me give you the predominant worldview that you're grandchildren that many of you had that's being taught at, uh, you know, a uh, and and being taught at University of Texas and being taught at Tarleton and being, you know, you, you name it, UTD, wherever, uh, the, 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 the prevailing school of thought in higher education, the prevailing school of thought that you'll see on most television programs, the prevailing school of thought that you'll see in movies, the prevailing school of thought that is the system that, that we all live in today. I'm saying prevailing uh, because it doesn't describe everybody. There was a philosopher in the 18th century, a man by the name of David Hume. Uh, David Hume was a skeptic. He was also an empiricist, and I'll give you an understanding of why that's important. But he says, a wise man proportions his belief according to the evidence. So if you're going to believe anything, you better have some reasons to believe what you believe. So, he, he's and, and his argument was number two, our knowledge of the world should come from observations made by our senses. We cannot reason accurately beyond what we see and hear. So, Hume would argue that if you're going to believe anything, you've got to believe everything by observation. So, I sit outside and I watch the rain fall and I watch the Sun come up and I, I watch how the, the, the whole system of this world works and I make observations. From those observations, I deduce that the planet and the universe and everything works by fixed natural laws. And therefore anything that defies those fixed natural laws that goes against those has to be rejected. Empiricism is simply, you know, what what I can sense and see. Skepticism is I'm gonna hold out doubt. On anything that goes against that. So that, that, that's David Hume, okay? You think that's being taught in our world today? Sure it is. It's being taught. It's, it's the supernatural that's being rejected because we can't observe it. Where's God? I want God to come down here. I heard, a, I heard a, uh, an atheist uh, who was uh, uh, debating a, a Christian, and you know the atheist, I may have shared this before, he held up a pen, and uh, he said, if God exists... I want you right now, I'm gonna give you ten seconds to make this pen disappear. And he says, why wouldn't God want to do that? If he was God, why wouldn't he make that pen disappear? You know? And he was trying to be a little God and, and he counted 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, and the pen didn't disappear. And he said, see, there there is no God. And you know, because I he didn't I operate according to my rules. He didn't operate according to, you know, we, we all know, he said, that doesn't happen. Therefore God doesn't exist. And I was praying as I was watching that that God would make the atheist disappear and leave the pen. But that that didn't happen, so David Hume then ha- is responsible in large part to a, a system that is uh, permeated our culture. Uh, he would argue for a miracle to be called a miracle, it must be something that never happens in the normal world, and therefore miracles do not happen by their very definition, because a miracle is something that defies the natural order, and nothing defies the natural order. therefore he argues that a Miracle can't happen. So by definition, miracles are beyond the realms of reasonable belief. And his argument is, therefore, miracles cannot happen. Uh, Just to give you a further insight into his thinking, uh, he makes this argument. He says, a miracle may be accurately defined uh, a transgression of a law of nature by a particular volition of the deity or by the uh, interposition of some invisible agent. So he's like, if, if a miracle were to happen, it would have to be uh, uh, a transgression, I love how he puts that, of the law of nature, and it would have to be at the hands of a deity or the hands of a special, a- a special agent, an invisible agent. Uh, and he calls this the violation definition. It's a key claim. Uh, that a miracle is a violation or breaking of a natural law. And so no sensible person could ever believe that a miracle had happened. Other interpretations are far more likely. And based on our past experiences, we know that this does not happen. So you might ask yourself this question, then, what did he say or how did he argue uh, uh, about people who believe in miracles? Well, here's what he would say. Stories of miracles tend to come from ignorant and barbarous places, barbarous places, and nations rather than from well educated people. How's that for condescension? Therefore, their testimonies are not to be trusted. These people are more likely to be gullible and less familiar with rational scientific theories. How's that? You're just ignorant, is what he would say. And because you're ignorant, you're not to be believed. And there are a lot more arguments that Hume made. He, he made the argument, he said, religious people have a reason to have miracles. If they don't have miracles, they don't have a God. So you know, they're going to invent these miracles. They can invent them all they want to invent them. They can talk about them all they want to talk about them. But they didn't happen because they violate their transgression against the natural law, all right? So that's Hume. Now, he's 18th century. But what about what about more recent. Well, Maurice Wiles uh, has a a book. He wrote a book called The Myth of the God Incarnate. Uh, And Maurice Wiles is a, uh, uh, I think he's an Anglican uh, uh, who taught at uh, Oxford University. Okay. Um, And uh, so uh, he was there from like 1970 to, 19, he, he's, he's I was going to say he's now with the Lord, I'm not quite certain, uh, but he's died, but uh, I mean he was at, at Oxford for a number of years. He gives you a little bit of a different perspective, and this is another one that's being proffered in our institutions. Uh, he didn't reject the concept of miracle for scientific reasons, okay? So he, he said, I'm not going to go with the Hume argument uh, as, a, as, a, as, a, as an Anglican quote-unquote Christian, uh, he says, certainly the notion of a miracle cannot simply be ruled out on scientific grounds as logically impossible, since the world we know is not a closed, deterministically ordered system. Okay? He's gotta throw that out there because he's uh he's a uh, he's, uh, he's a religious guy. So, you know, there has to be some there has to be some order and reason to and and and, and reason for your being and 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 our our world is is not deterministically ordered. So uh, there are things that can happen outside of what we know and what we experience. Here's his argument. The problem with miracles is making sense of the morality and wisdom of God. Okay? So for whiles, he had a problem with miracles because of Hiroshima and Nagasaki and because of Auschwitz and because of concentration camps, just to name a few. And so his argument was, well, listen, if the Bible teaches, as you believe, that God is a God of miracles who does the supernatural, how is it possible that a God who can part a Red Sea and a God who can raise a Savior from the dead wouldn't step in and keep these two atrocities from happening? And so he had a problem with the problem of what? Evil. He, it, it circled all the way back. For him to the problem of evil and here's his argument uh, Wiles objection to the traditional view of miracles is on moral grounds he says if there is a God who sometimes performs these sudden miraculous interventions in the world then it must be an arbitrary God a God who has favorites a God who can be unfair and a God who lacks compassion so his argument is you know if there's a God he's awfully arbitrary I mean, how, how, wh- wh- why would he do one miracle and not do them all? And so maybe he is not a god of love, and maybe he's not uh, I'm not benevolent, or or, or or maybe he's incapable really of stepping in. Um, An occasion where God intervenes with the natural order to help individuals or groups raises issues about consistency and fairness. God would have to be arbitrary or partisan. You know those words. Arbitrary is an action based on random choice, partisan, a strong supporter of a certain party or group. And his argument is that God is both arbitrary and partisan. So sometimes he steps in and sometimes he doesn't. And sometimes he likes other people more than he likes others. You remember, by the way, that Jesus was asked a question by the disciples and about why bad things happen. Remember there was an occasion where the disciples came to him and said, Lord, tell us about why the tower fell on those Galileans where, where, uh, where they were sinners or why, why were uh, those slaughtered. Uh, were, did, did they do something wrong? And what did Jesus say? He didn't answer the question exactly the way they wanted. What, in other words, why did this bad thing happen to these people? Were they sinners because of that? Were they worse than everybody else? And what did Jesus say? Mm-hmm. Unless you repent, you all likewise perish. Jesus didn't, uh, didn't get sucked into their question. He was saying, listen, bad things happen you need to make sure that when anything happens, good, bad, or whatever, that your heart is right before God. Evil is, is reality. Jesus didn't deny the existence or reality of evil, but he said, unless you repent. In other words, you can put your hope in something beyond the influence of evil or the influence of bad things in this world. Again, uh, so Wiles struggled with that. Um, and so the question, he would say, is a God who performs occasional arbitrary miracles worthy of worship? And his ultimate conclusion. Now, can you imagine being in a classroom at a university and all your life you're, sit and you're, you're, you're sitting in church and you're taught, you know, miracles happen, miracles happen, miracles happen. And a learned professor starts throwing this stuff at you and you've never heard it before. And you're going, wait, time out. That makes sense. Right? It, 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 and you're a mind that's trying to learn and, and trying to process things, and now all of a sudden you're hearing, wait, do we have an arbitrary, unloving God? And, and you can see how that worldview begins to suck people in, and it, unless they have a reason for the hope that is within them and a defense for the faith that they believe, where they can go back to biblical truth and say, wait, no, 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 this is not right. So Wiles' ultimate conclusion is He believed it is better theologically to believe in a God that does not do any miracles than one that was not morally good. So his ultimate conclusion was, I would rather say that God doesn't do miracles than to say that God isn't morally good. He believed that there was an effect, uh, a single miracle uh, called creation, and That God's creation was good, but it doesn't require intervention in the form of other miracles. So he ultimately concluded, "Well, yeah, there was one miracle. God created everything, uh, but there is not, there is no need necessary for any other miracles." Obviously, you can imagine. Uh, with that belief, goes out the resurrection and goes out lots of stuff that are so fundamental to who we are as Christians. What is the resurrection? Well, it's a, uh, it's it's a uh, it's a uh, in in in. Lack of better ways to describe it, uh, a guy like Wiles would say, well, it's this event, in quotes, that the Christians believed, that the church believes happened, and it inspires us to have hope and, uh, uh, you know, promise and all of that. But historically, no. It's history like, but it's not likely history. You, you get the difference, the subtle nuance there. Okay? So, y'all have all that down? Can you get up here and repeat that to me and walk through that? I just wanted to give you an overview. Now, I want you to take the sheet that you have, and in the few minutes that we have uh, remaining, I, I want to walk you through this uh, this uh, first part. This is prefaced at the top. So, let's talk about biblical the biblical perspective for a moment. And again, some of this will be uh, familiar because we just spoke about it. A miracle is an event that apparently contradicts known scientific laws and is hence thought to be due to supernatural causes, especially to an act of God. Now, notice that that is the Webster's new 20th century unabridged dictionary definition. Do you notice that even Webster, the guy that wrote the dictionary, uh, put in there, apparently contradicts? Uh, so you even see in the, in the definition that, that, that graces the, the dictionary, there's the apparent contradiction, of a, of a of a of a scientific law, um, and then that is thought to be due to supernatural causes, uh, a wonderful happening that is above, against, or independent of the known laws of nature. Thorndike Barnhart Junior Dictionary. So this gives you a little perspective. Okay, you can even see the bias, by the way, in the definitions uh, that are in the dictionary. Uh, the 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 bias towards this idea that it is. Uh, it's an apparent contradiction, or it's thought to be due to a supernatural cause. So, words in the New Testament, when we uh, read about the acts of God, there are three primary words: signs, wonders, and miracles. You've read those in your Bible. Uh, Greek: Simeon, uh, Teras, and uh, or dunamis. or Um Let's talk signs evidence or proof of divine authority, power. And mission referring to the purpose of the act. wonder something unusual causing wonder and amazement. And miracles, a power indicating works of supernatural origin. If you have your Bibles, I want to show you how these words are uh, come out in our New Testament. Uh, and if you want to turn to Acts 22... For 2 Corinthians 12 or 2, Corinthians, 2 Thessalonians 2, that's fine. If you don't, I'm just going to read these passages for you. Probably by the time you get there, I already have read them. Uh, but Acts chapter 2, verse 22, um, here uh, we'll see these words. Men, men of Israel, hear these words Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs. That God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. Interesting, isn't it? That Luke takes all three of those words, he puts them all into one verse, and he draws attention to those things happening by the work of Jesus. Isn't that interesting? So in one stroke of the pen, what does Luke do in the book of Acts? He describes Peter's Pentecost sermon, right, as Peter preaches it, and Luke is telling us, listen, Peter, who was an what? Eyewitness, right? He was there. He saw it. He's saying that he, uh, Jesus, did mighty works, wonders, and signs, okay? So, that's just one example. But look at the second example over in 2 Corinthians. It's awesome, by the way, if you have your phone. You can type those scripture references in really fast and bing. Uh, they come up fast. So um, if you're like old school, you've got to flip in your Bible, which I love hearing pages turn. Uh, but you don't hear that as much. Second um, Corinthians 12, 12. And here, this is the Apostle Paul. Um, he says, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utter utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works for in what you less favor than the rest of the church, except that I myself did not burden you. What is he saying? He's talking about miracles. Work by the hands of the apostles, signs, wonders, and mighty works. And then turn over uh, for a moment to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 9. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 9. This will be an interesting little twist. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. Isn't that interesting? As we've been talking in the morning Bible study with our men that every time God moves, Satan offers a counter move. So every time God does something, Satan always wants to counterfeit what God does. And so even as we get to the ends of the age, even as the curtain of human history begins to fall, you'll see signs and false wonders and, and uh uh, our enemy will use those. But notice that all three words in the same passage in different order. Um, there is a fourth word used by John to denote the miracles of Jesus, and he calls it work, ergon in the Greek, and simply means an act or a deed. Okay? So we, we talk about signs, wonders, miracles, or works in the, in the, in the Scripture. And we're specifically talking just for a moment about the New Testament. So miracles in the New Testament had a purpose. Miracles were performed for a number of reasons, we know. Number one, they were performed to confirm the Word. They were for the purpose of confirmation. Um, One of my favorite passages, and it should be hopefully one of your favorite passages... Because when we talked last week about the deity of Jesus, I referenced uh, uh, the book of Hebrews to you. But I want to read it. Hebrews chapter 2 and uh, verses 2 through 4. But I'll I'll start with verse 1 because it's it's such a rich passage. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or uh, disobedience received its just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it is attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. So the writer of Hebrews is saying, how did God confirm what he was doing through Christ? He confirmed that through signs, wonders, miracles. Uh, Mark chapter 16, verse 20, we won't turn there, but, but uh, you can make, the, make note of that. Secondly, miracles in the New Testament were to produce faith in Jesus. Uh, these are passages you have read many times, but it's kind of fun to reread them as we read them in their context with the subject of miracles. But John 20, verse 30 and 31. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. You see what John is saying? He was saying Jesus did a whole lot more than what you have but what he did do, the miracles that he did do, he did them for the express purpose of doing what? Of producing faith in Jesus so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ. Um, just, just parenthetically, I'll give you another example of this. Um, well, let's, just, let's do John 3, 2, and I want to give you another example. Number three, to show that God is, is with Jesus, John 3, 2. Um, So John 3, 2, this man uh, will uh, begin in verse 1. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs you do unless God is with him. So, again, even Nicodemus recognized that the signs that Jesus was doing was an affirmation of the, of the approval of the Father upon the work that the Son was accomplishing and then, uh, number four, demonstrate that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, as prophesied. Um, you have Isaiah 53, 4, but turn to Matthew 8, 16, and 17. Matthew eight sixteen and 17. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons... And he cast out spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our uh, illnesses and bore our diseases. Why did he do what he did? To demonstrate that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God. The prophecy of Isaiah 53, Isaiah 61. Uh, and the same, by the way, is, is echoed over in Luke chapter 4, um, verses 18 and 19, the uh the Isaiah prophecy, but Luke 4, verses 18 and 19. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has set me to proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovering of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled in the works of Jesus to demonstrate that Jesus is the Christ. Now, these aren't the only examples. Let me give you one that you know about. Remember in uh, Mark chapter 2, there is a uh, a man who's uh, paralyzed, and he's on a mat, and there are people in the house listening to Jesus, and his friends take this man up on the roof, and they tear open the roof, and they lower him down in the presence of Jesus. And Jesus looks at the man who is unable to walk, and Jesus said to the guy, he said, uh, Son, your uh, sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees began to complain, uh, who can forgive sin but God alone? Who are you, right? Well, I mean, that's a good point. Only God can ultimately forgive sin. And if you don't believe that Jesus is God, uh, then you're going to believe that He's uttering blasphemous sayings. So Jesus uh, says to him, because your sins are forgiven, here's what I say to you. Rise up, take up your bed, and walk, take up your mat, and walk and you know the the way that I have uh, often looked at that passage is is this the the easy thing and, and you understand what I mean by easy, the easy thing for Jesus to do would be basically to say your sins are forgiven because who could verify that? I mean who could verify that the, his sins were forgiven could you you, you couldn't get into his heart you he, you know, people today, I mean, I was raised in a family where some of my family members would go to confession, and they would sit in a confessional, and they would, they would you know, confess their sins, and, and the person on the other side of the window would say, your sins are forgiven, go do such and such, your sins are forgiven, right? That's not hard to say, um, but how did Jesus confirm what He did? I mean, what He said, by what He did. And so he said, I say to you, take up your bed and walk. And then as Mark continues to write, Mark makes the point that the healing of the, of the lame man in the house was to demonstrate through the act of the miracle that he was the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that he had the ability to forgive sin, and that's why he came. And so the miracle then was a confirmation or an affirmation that God was upon him, that he was who he says he was. Uh, it was for the express purpose of demonstrating that. A lot of us read Mark two and we think we got to get our friends to Jesus, right? And we do. And that that that, that passage is telling us, well, "Tear the roof down, bring your friends with you." But the passage is much deeper and much more profound uh, than just that. So miracles had an instant and complete uh, it had instant and complete results. Uh, such as the lame man at the pool of Bethesda, immediately the man was made whole, John 2. Uh, they had undeniable results, for even the enemies of Jesus and his apostles admitted they performed signs and wonders. Um, but by the way, isn't that interesting? Even his, the enemies would say that they did stuff that was, uh, that was uh, unusual. Miracles were performed under various conditions. Uh, the woman with the issue of blood, another had faith and the, uh, the healing of the centurion servant. Um, and there was no apparent faith. This is an interesting observation, by the way. There was no apparent faith such as the raising of the widow's son in the village of Nain. So remember, the woman's carrying the, 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 the son out. Jesus is coming into town. He stops, does a healing. But there is no apparent act of faith there. It's simply an act of mercy on the part of Jesus. Uh, Why would he do that? Well, for one of those reasons, but yet he did it. It's always a powerful passage for me, too, because most of the time you're not going to join a funeral procession if you're not part of the family. You may stop your car and pull over to the side and um, maybe say a prayer for the people that are going by. What did Jesus do? He actually joined the procession. And uh, I love to use that passage when I'm trying to comfort and help people who have lost loved ones. Listen. He is never more close to a family than when they have lost someone, uh, and will come to them uh, if they uh, reach out by faith to him. The New Testament relates about 35 miracles. Uh, on the back side, there are 34, but there are 17. Uh, number 17 includes two acts. So um, you know you can see nature, healing, miracles of the resurrection, and so I've just those are just listed um, for you. Th- this is not something I put together. These are. Uh, this is a chart that you can find in a lot of different places. This comes from a particular book on miracles. But you, you can see that chart, and it's kind of interesting as you look through it to see the parallel passages. Um, you know, just as a side note, and we'll end here, I, I think it's interesting, uh, uh, somebody, and I can't remember, I was reading so many different people about miracles, uh, but somebody said that, why did Jesus turn the water to wine at Cana? And the response was, because his mom asked him to. And, uh, I mean, I don't know how theological that is, you know, how spectacular that is, but it's really why he did it. I mean, if you think about it, uh, you know, we ran, we've run out of wine. What do we do? And Mary says, well, whatever he tells you to do, go do it, you know. So, um, you know, go to him. Let, 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 let him do it. So. Um, but you can see the, the various miracles that occur uh, throughout the, the life of Jesus. So again, all of what we've talked about, whether it's the existence of God, whether it's the reality or truthfulness of the Bible, whether it's the, the, uh, the uh, veracity of the, the resurrection, the, the existence of heaven or hell, I mean, we've, we've walked through all of these different questions. Um, they, they don't make any sense if you don't have a God. And if we don't have a God who gives us a word that's a trustworthy word, then you know, it's, it's basically my opinion, your opinion, my thoughts, your thoughts. And to be honest, uh, maybe some people are smarter than others because they've studied more, read more. But at the uh, end of the day, your thoughts and uh, your opinions and my opinions really don't matter much, do they? Because opinions don't change lives. Opinions don't set the course for human history. Opinions don't take people from the, 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 the uh, disillusionment and, and, uh, and sorrow of the grave. Uh, to hope and expectation, opinions don't do that. You've got to have something. you got to have something you can hold on to. Um, faith isn't faith unless it's all that you're holding on to. And uh, again, I want to just circle back one last observation. I meant to say it earlier. When you look at a guy like David Hume, who is an empiricism, uh, empiricist, who says, you know, you've got to look at evidence. You've got to, you've got to look at, you know, what you can see and, and what what you can experience. It's not that Christianity doesn't have evidence there's evidence. It's not that people don't believe in Jesus because there's no evidence. It's because people don't believe in the evidence that exists. They, ch- they choose not to, 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 to accept the evidence that's there. There is evidence for a resurrection. There is evidence for a truthful Bible. We, we talked about that. Uh, we looked at extra biblical sources and the, and the, and the, uh, uh, the manuscript evidence, and we, we went through all that, so there's evidence. It's just you don't choose to believe the evidence, and if you don't believe the evidence, then you're not going to believe um, in, 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 in who the Bible teaches that Jesus is, or you're not even going to believe the Bible. Or you're not even going to believe that God exists, remember? God has written his name where? In the heavens. The heavens declare the glory of God. Therefore, all are without excuse, right? So anyway, I have so much more to say, but you are unable to receive it now. Yes? Pastor, thank you for putting all this together. Absolutely. It's been fun. And uh, next week, we'll we'll be a little let down. Warren will be here next week. (laughs) I can't assure you that it will be any. What's that? Well, I I can assure you one thing. It'll be loud. (laughs) Somebody told me the other day, they said, man, when that guy preaches, He's loud. I said, "Oh, he's all right. He's he's he's, he's not angry. He's just loud." So, <laughs> Father, thank you for our time. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this uh, study we've been able to undertake together. And I pray uh, that we'll be better equipped, Lord, to believe the things that you've taught us, the things that you.